everyone comes to the Harvard Macy program as students, but you have to leave as teachers. So welcome to our next Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about leaders, leadership development, and in particular, the program from the Harvard Macy Institute, which looks at uh, leadership for those in the health professions and health professions education. Uh, I'm joined, of course, by uh, Josh Nagler, who's going to be talking to us about the course. He's one of the co-directors, and we're going to be introducing some of the other stars of this show. How are you, Josh? I'm great. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for having me. Well, somehow we've managed to not yet have you on the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I don't know how that is. Uh, for our guests who haven't been to the Leaders Program, why don't you introduce yourself? Wonderful. Uh, so my name is Josh Nagler. I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician uh, as my clinical role, and uh, medical education is the other hat that I wear. And in particular, um, uh, here, I am one of the co-directors of the Leading Innovation, Harvard Macy Leading Innovation uh, in uh, Healthcare and Education course. And you've been doing that for a little while now. Yeah, so I've been uh, helping plan the course now for a handful of years, um, working with Liz Armstrong, of course, who, who built Harvard Macy, um, and then Derek Van Beaver from Harvard Business School, who took over that role from Clay Christensen within the last few years, yeah. Mm. And I guess even before we get into the content here, you've really been one of the uh, people who had to pioneer the virtual course for the first time last year. That was quite an experience and one that I, to be frank, Josh, was so surprised. I did was not as optimistic as clearly all you were and it was fantastic. Yeah, it, it, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, if you think about, you know, February and March of last year, uh, there was a lot of unknown at that point, and um, the pandemic was really unfolding in front of our eyes, and no one really knew how it was going to play out. And we were forced to make this decision about, is this course going to happen or not? Uh, quickly realized it was not going to happen in person, and then decided, um, is this something that we could switch to the virtual space or not? And um, given the nature of the courses about uh, leading an innovation, it seemed like that was the thing to do. Yep, you guys are the definition of pivot. So... Uh... <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, leadership, leadership development, leading innovations and change. And so just for listeners, this is going to be a veritable melange of voices in our uh, show today because uh, Josh and I are going to have a conversation. But interspersed with that, we have some audio from Derek Van Viva, who he mentioned before, uh, Liz Armstrong, and two of the scholars from the last course, Tanya Holt and Tanya Horsley. And between them, we're going to run through some thoughts about why we do leadership development, who we're doing it for, uh, what it is that we're actually teaching or learning, and perhaps a bit of a deep dive into how we do that with some reflections on the program itself. So we're going to start with some comments from Derek Van Beaver, one of the co-directors of the Leading Innovations course at the Harvard Macy Institute. Now, he's a senior lecturer in the General Management Unit at the Harvard Business School and teaches courses in their MBA program. But he really described to me how he thought this leadership development was just so critical in the industries of education and in healthcare. So here's what he had to say. You know, I think it's critical that we teach this up and coming generation of leaders to see clearly what is ahead 
for both of these industries? What's coming and how to craft a strategy to prosper into the future? Um, these are two sectors that are obviously going through massive wrenching change that's going to reshape, I think, the structure of the industries as well as their leadership rankings. And as far as I can tell, we're at the real early stages of this change. Um, my, my particular role in the program is to teach about disruptive innovation, You know what it really looks like, because the world often misunderstands disruption, why it's so powerful and how to respond to it. And I think healthcare and education are being disrupted, if you will, in the same ways and for the same reason. And it might not be obvious at, at first sight, but um, I think the key is to focus on the business models of these two sectors. You know, roughly speaking, there are two ways to design a business model, depending on who you see as the customer. So you can design it principally to serve the provider of the product or service, or uh, you can design it to serve the actual end customer. And I think in healthcare and education, both of these sectors have identified, you know, professors and doctors as the resources around which we're going to build our, our service design. And when you've got organizations coming along who say, no, 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 actually it's the end customer, the student, the patient who should be at the center, that is not only a much more powerful formulation for the business, but it spells real trouble for the traditional organizations that are structured according to that other model. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Josh? Are, are we really in such a critical time, do you think? Yeah, I, I do think we're seeing pretty dramatic changes in both healthcare and healthcare education. I, I think that's spot on. Um, I think the other thing is that for many of us, um, we don't have formal training in leadership. Um, and so whether it's medical school or nursing degrees or advanced education degrees, um, we, we get training in whatever that content matter is, but not necessarily in leadership. And, and people end up leading efforts or in leadership positions as they rise in their career, as they advance in their career, but without anyone ever having said to them, here's how you can be effective as a leader. Here are strategies to think about. Yes, indeed. And I think that leads nicely into what Liz Armstrong, our director of the Harvard Macy Institute, had to say about some of the barriers to doing this leadership development in these industries. And, you know, it may have something to do with the language. The word leader in our language and in multiple other foreign languages uh, always sort of brings to mind someone who's the top of the organization or the top of the country, when in fact, in my thinking about leadership, which I've learned about over these last 27, 28 years running these courses, it's, it's more about helping others to make the changes that are going to make the improvements in your practice for your students, for your patients, for those we serve. So I, I thought erroneously, when I first started Harvard Macy all those years ago, that there would be a very senior group of people who would take this leadership course, leading innovations, and then the more middle manager would take the educator course, but that they needed to have a similar language so that when they went back home, these two groups could work more uh, successfully together. And what I learned very quickly is that the same people who were in the leadership course 
needed to be in the educator course because they needed to learn those skills. A good teacher is a good leader. Um, and the people who were in the educator course at whatever level, even if they were residents or students, and we took early on medical students and, and we love having them in our courses, they belonged in the leadership course uh, as well as the more senior, if you will, uh, leaders of organizations. And that's precisely because of, I believe what you said earlier, it's about leading change. And yet that's quite hard, isn't it, Josh? Some people seem to be stuck on the idea of only sending the people in the C-suite off to the leadership development. I think that's right. I think that, that I think we all naturally have this vision that a leader is a top in some hierarchical structure um, uh, person. And, and the truth is that we lead efforts constantly. We lead initiatives. We lead um, small groups of people. We large, group, large groups of people. So um, it doesn't just have to be a person in a named high-level position that could benefit from learning about leadership principles and skills. Mm, absolutely. And I guess uh, one of the good things uh, I'd be interested to know, the composition, it seems to me anyway, for the leaders program is that you really do get scholars from across the breadth of their sort of working life and professional uh, level. Um, do you have any kind of numbers on that or just a similar kind of impression? Yeah, I don't know that I have numbers, um, but I, I completely agree that there is um, incredible diversity in who takes the course uh, across many different uh, metrics, uh, one of which is where people are in their careers. I, I first joined the Macy community myself when I was a just finished fellowship. Um, and so, you know, there's people who are very early in their careers that are taking some of these courses, and there's people who are very senior level people taking these courses. Well, speaking of scholars, I've got some audio here from Dr. Tanya Horsley as to why she thought this was a valuable thing to do and uh, at what point you do this kind of leadership development. Now, Tanya Horsley is the Associate Director of Research at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada, where her current research explores the formalization of integrated knowledge translation for the co-creation, use and influence of research and complex systems of care. Uh, she also is passionate about improving the practices of reporting research in medical education through reporting guidelines. But here she is talking about getting out front. Uh, I think it's the time to do this is now uh, because businesses are changing. Uh, they're evolving. There's no business that's going to do business the way it did it before. And I think if you want to be at the front of the conversation, uh, the time is to do it now. Um you know, I can't anticipate yet what the curriculum has shifted with this. And I, I know that to be the, the way of the Harvard Macy program. They're on the front uh, of the conversation of the innovations that we're thinking about as health leaders uh, who are looking to do uh, changes and implement innovations. But if you want to be out front in your institution, if you want contemporary best practices, um, I can't imagine why you wouldn't take the Harvard Macy course now. Uh, all right. Well, then I think if we move on to thinking about the what of leadership development, and I think any quality program looking to develop leaders in healthcare, education or elsewhere has probably got to have a combination of theory and practice. And so I asked Liz just to tell us a little bit about that and in particular about the role that disruptive innovation plays in the course. You know, people have often asked me over the years if there's a single theory that guides the way I've designed and with my with the, this team, this extraordinary team that we have at Harvard Macy, 
uh, how, how we've designed the course. And as I've thought about it, yes, we certainly lean on, if you will, the theory of disruptive innovation. That's been important uh, in, in this course right from the start, probably because I felt all along that that theory helped us think about how important it is to take risks that if we just keep doing what we think our best customers want and don't stay open to the new ideas that are emerging for another customer base, if you will, or client base, we will soon be obsolete. And so the theory of disruptive innovation supported my own thinking about how important it is for people to remain open to taking risks and to making change. And these disruptive innovation concepts often have a big impact on the scholars attending. Uh, next, you're going to hear from Dr. Tanya Holt, another scholar from 2020, who's a pediatric intensivist at the Jim Patterson Children's Hospital in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, where she's the PICU division head for the last 14 years. And here's uh, here she is talking a little bit about uh, just what an impact that had on her. I think the day that I realized, wow, I feel like I'm involved in something special was the disruptive innovation day. I was like, <gasps> I just like light bulbs are going off like crazy. I not only feel validated and more confident to move forward with some of some ideas that I've thought maybe are uh, out there, but have opportunity. It grew confidence. And I had some academic ac- academia and structure around those ideas. That's what Harvard Macy gave me. So, Josh, can I ask you what you think about that, this interplay between teaching and learning theory and practice for leaders? Uh, It's not something that in the lay press, at least, we get a lot of airtime that leadership is underpinned by theory. It's uh, it's interesting. I think there's probably a little bit of of both in some ways. Um, uh, I'll give you the perfect example. I can completely envision during the question and answer session when people would ask Clay questions and they would say, what do you think about this? And Clay's response. So here is this amazing leader who's, you know, uh, done just tremendous amount of work in the field. And he would say, well, I think what the theory would say about that is the following. And so here is this amazing leader who is saying, but we need to be thinking about what the theory says. So I think we really cover both in the course. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because it may be the first time that people have been exposed to that, even if they've been exposed to theory and their educational practice or their clinical practice, they may not have positioned it as much in some of their organizational challenges. Uh, and, and I think Derek really picked up on this, didn't he, when he talked so much about the context being important and teaching people to be able to make decisions and uh perform their leadership functions in a specific context rather than, again, trying to emulate people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We're, we're not big fans of looking at leaders and trying to emulate exactly what they do because we believe that success or failure rides more on understanding the circumstance you're in and how to respond to it than copying um, the behaviors or actions of 
a leader in a different circumstance whom you might admire, but whose actions aren't necessarily relevant to you. So for example, um, in the whole theory of disruption, um, when my mentor <clears throat> and, and one of the founders of Harvard Macy with Liz, Clay Christensen, first started studying, you know, why is it that sometimes, you know, little tiny upstart organizations can unseat even very powerful incumbents? There were lots of arguments at the time based on attributes of the incumbent and the attacker. You know, maybe the management team has gotten too self-satisfied and they're lazy and they don't see the attacker coming or conversely, maybe the attacker attacks them on too many fronts at once. And the problem that Clay spotted was that sometimes those things were true, but often they weren't. And so he finally concluded, um, you know, there's not much to be gained from studying the attributes of the incumbents or the upstarts, studying the attributes of leaders. What we need to do rather is to study the circumstances in which the attacker and the incumbent meet on the field of battle. And there's something about this, the way in which the attacker approaches that causes the incumbent to turn and flee or ignore them. And that's what really um, separates winners from losers. So what we do, we, we take that, that insight that it is much more about understanding the circumstance you're in than the things you've seen work elsewhere that ends up being really important to focus on explicitly. What are the theories I'm using to guide the decisions that I'm making and are they right in the circumstance I'm facing? That's that's really the trick we think of of great leaders rather than following some playbook that if it existed, we'd all just follow it and <laughs> life would be great. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so maybe now having talked a little bit about why do this, about who we're doing it for and what it is that we're actually trying to teach and learn, uh, let's think about the methods because obviously the design of your course has to rest on some combination of uh, pedagogical approaches. And I thought Liz obviously had some lovely things to say about the use of case studies, which is really um one of the central parts of this. And as she also goes on to say further, uh, that helps us think about taking risks and putting yourselves out there and actually application. I kept coming back to the importance of using case studies. I think that if we wish to help leaders uh, in our field think about how they will get into action, we need to give them practice at that in the classroom and in the conversations we have through case studies. So um, I'll throw a, a plus out there for Harvard Business School. I believe the model they created probably over 100 years ago now, in which people study written real cases of organizations in which there were successes, failures, glitches along the way, uh, are important for us to use in healthcare. And the reason I think case study teaching is so important is that it asks everyone, including the faculty member, to think about, well, what actually happened in this organization? What was going on? Uh, can you analyze uh, the different actions that the leaders and the managers and the followers took uh, that led toward the conclusion that you might have read about? And, and then after a careful dive into what happened in that story, in that case, 
the audience is encouraged to think about, well, why did that happen? Uh, why in that setting did those actions occur? So that you're not just thinking about necessarily the Cleveland Clinic or Harvard Medical School, but you're thinking about, could this happen to me in Australia? Could this particular scenario have occurred here? And if I can think about why it happened, you may be able to either prevent a dilemma or you might be able to support uh, a new way of of uh, moving your organization. And then finally, in a case discussion, there are three, always three elements. What's going on? Why did this happen? And then finally, what's the better course of action? What are the recommendations? So you as the learner, uh, potential new leader, are actually sitting there on the hot seat thinking about, well, what would I do in this setting? And I think that practice is extraordinarily important for every person who wants to think about leading a project, leading a clinic, leading a big organization. Um, So for me, case studies are critical in, in the classroom. That theory has really sort of aligned beautifully with my own probably strong values and beliefs about needing to take risks, expose new ideas, Uh, air them in a safe place where you can uh, get criticism, accept it, and think about whether or not that person actually has a valid point that you need to to work with. So I obviously would agree with that. Case studies really do push you to think hard, Josh. Uh, Where do you actually get these case studies to tease out some of these principles that Liz is talking about? The, the case studies that we've used are largely from the business school. Um, and then the other um, content that ends up getting integrated into what we talk about are, are often situations and circumstances from the scholars themselves. So there's large group and there's small group. Um, the large group have, have been the, the kind of traditional case method from, uh, from HBS. Um, but the small groups really end up all being about the scholars' individual cases. And those are the case studies in some ways. So one of the elements that appears to be central to the success of using case studies, uh, and indeed many other learning strategies, is to take risks and our learners actually having to put themselves out there. But I guess this means that we have to take on the responsibility to establish, maintain, repair, if necessary, these uh, so-called safe spaces and psychological safety, which is uh, interesting and probably fairly nuanced concept. So I asked Derek a little bit about what he meant when he was talking about creating such safe spaces. We devote so much attention to figuring out how do we create a safe space in our classroom for um, conversation, interaction, questions, and how do we build community such that our learners, our participants learn as early as possible that, you know, I'm not alone. If I think I have you know, a so-called dumb question, uh, you can be very certain that your dumb question is a smart question that is on a lot of your peer participants' minds. And so much of our week is devoted to, you know, person-to-person introductions and, and, and familiarization, and then small group learning and preparation, and then the large group conversation, and then after action kind of debriefs, so um, 
Yeah, I think I think I'll bet we attract people who um, maybe they're a little bit hesitant about you know taking a risk, but they want to be the kinds of people who who would would take risks. And we, and I think we think that through taking those kinds of risks is how you really grow. Yeah, I, I think the concept of, you know, a psychologically safe space is, is key. Um, I think that that is now um, recognized uh, more broadly than it than it was previously. I think it's being able to to ask questions and to not be right. Um, so, you know, I think some people think psychologically safe space means no one challenges anything. And, and I don't think that's the concept that we're looking for at all, um, but rather that it's okay to say, I don't understand this, or why do we do it this way or whatnot. Um, and I think people uh, appreciate the opportunity to do that during this course. Yes, I think this is a very important distinction, Josh. Uh, this isn't soft. This is a safe space. And as Liz points out, uh, creating this kind of environment means that it's not just the scholars who get something out of encouraging diversity of views and reflection on old assumptions. Because we can learn from each other. People in much less well-resourced schools uh, have come up with better ideas than we have. And I want to learn about them. By the same token, they want to learn about what we've tried out and failed or succeeded with. So we have to create a place in which everyone feels as though their opinion, idea matters and that they are heard. And that kind of an environment, I think, takes a commitment from the on the part of all of the teachers that we bring to our teams to buy into this culture. And I think here at Harvard Macy, I am just beyond proud of the fact that we really all can look at each other and say, A, I care about you, and B, I can't wait to hear what your ideas are. And I would have to say that is probably a pretty good principle for life, and yet one that's quite hard to do when one finds one's ideas confronted or opposed. By way of evidence of impact of this approach, here's Tanya Horsley talking about safe spaces and connection. You know, that sense of community that's built, um, you know, that that desire to come back and contribute to it, um, and, to, and you continue to learn as faculty, I'm sure, as you go back. But um, it's the diversity and the safety, you know, that was a safe space. I felt like that was a safe space for us to really, you know, test the waters, have, you know, um, innovative, um, sometimes crazy ideas about what to do. And the faculty and everyone that was on the team, it was so supportive to just litmus test some of those things and say, okay, I'm going to take this experience and bring that back to my organization. Like I've already implemented many things that I've learned uh, in the Harvard Macy program and have continued to stay in touch with some of the people in the course. So it's been such a, it's just been a positive experience for sure. And Josh, it does seem that sharing these vulnerabilities and taking these risks is at the heart of creating the trust and connection uh, that we talk about in the program, but which I suppose is a good model for how we build some of those relationships and trust relationships at work. I, I agree. I think there's something about, um, being willing to, you know, kind of expose yourself and and have some vulnerability and and share in that with uh, with some of the other scholars and the other faculty um, is part of creating this this sense of bonding that people are really getting to know each other and understanding what they're going through uh, and seeing how they can be of support. 
Yes, and of course, this leads nicely onto another topic that Liz spoke about, which was the importance of mentors uh, who might be found during these connections and bonding experiences. And of course, I guess we think about mentors broadly. They're not just the people 20 years ahead of us in a career. They might be peers, they might be more junior, they might come from another profession. I guess in short, they're people that care about us. But here is uh, something that Liz had to say about the importance of mentors. The, The second thing I would say that I think we can do in teaching leadership is being good mentors. Now more than ever, I think the, you know, the next generation uh, needs us to allow them to take risks in thinking, uh, support them, encourage them to uh, try out new ideas, and finally give them stretch exercises so in the real world they can practice some of their potential leadership skills with you as their mentor. All right. Well, so many good things that uh, we had from Derek and Liz uh, and Tanya Holt and Tanya Horsley. Uh, But I suppose one of the things that really comes across through the melding of these personalities is the learning from other disciplines. And I thought Derek had some lovely things to say about that. So I would really encourage our Harvard Macy um, participants to study deeply in psychology, in uh, uh, education theory in um, behavioral economics to understand how you know how people are you know weirdly irrational all all those kinds of things that help us understand each other better I think really pay dividends uh, for leaders. Yes, and of course I couldn't agree more with Derek there, Josh. But at the same time, this is actually quite hard, isn't it? Because I'm interested, how do you ensure that you're getting these diverse influences as you navigate your career, given that most of us of necessity uh, train still in relative silos and spend a lot of time uh, within our own disciplines? Yeah, um, I'll start by just uh, agreeing that I think that is a a deliberate decision as part of this course. And um, I'll tell you that personally, I have appreciated that and and try to do that in other teaching that I do as well. Um, I think there really is this uh, potential for people to work in silos. Um, And there's really neat ideas across silos that um, you just need someone to to break down those silos a little bit to recognize that that they have benefit in other disciplines as well. Um, The Macy, and this is this is uh, Liz from the beginning, has recognized that. And so the educator course was a collaboration in some ways between Harvard Macy and the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. And this course on leading and innovation um, similarly was this um, merger of ideas between the Harvard Business School at the time, Clay Christensen was the person who was the connection and Liz bringing those ideas together. So um, I think it is um, recognizing people who appreciate the value of bringing these ideas across and then collaborating and saying, what works? What do we want to include? How do we want to include it? Uh, And going from there. Yes, I agree. I think that is a pretty important part of the so-called secret source is that diversity. I guess as we start to think about the impacts of a program like the Leading Innovations in Healthcare, I thought Derek had some uh, lovely things to say here about those lasting and disseminated impacts. Everyone comes to the Harvard Macy program as students, but you have to leave as teachers. And so trying to figure out, you know, if if all that happens is you're exposed to a whole bunch of interesting material and it 
goes into an actual or virtual binder and up on your shelf when you get home, then there is no return on that activity other than you spent an engaging week. But if you're able to figure out how do I take this material, make it relevant to my organization, and then teach it um, strategically around the organization, that's how you make change. In fact, Ann Summers Hogg from Atrium Health, who follows me in the program, uh, is 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 the world's you know perfect role model for this because this is exactly what she did when she came and took our course at HBS. She and her colleague went back, versioned it, and taught it up and down their organization um, to hundreds of um, senior peer and then more junior staff members who now all have this shared language and common frameworks to use. Yes, I love that. Arrivers, learners, leavers, teachers. Uh, while we're talking about lasting impacts, Josh, I guess you must get some lovely emails and uh, feedback about where the scholars take their leadership after they've gone home. Yeah, it's. Um, uh, I don't think it's fair to say a favourite part, but it's probably a favourite part, um, are the emails that come afterwards and the and the communication that comes afterwards saying how important participating in the course was for people. Um, uh, we hear from people, you know, months later, how the project that they had brought with them is now, uh, you know, come to fruition and it is an up and running program. Um, we hear how people maintain connections with other scholars, with other faculty. Um, I was just working the other day with a colleague whose wife had taken uh, one of the Macy courses and uh, he described to me how she is still in touch with her project group from 15 years ago. Um, um, so there really are these meaningful connections uh, that happen over time, and, and it's definitely a, a highlight of the program. Mm. And it sounds like you think some of the keys to that are having something like a tight group like the project group where you're relying on each other at the time and you've got some not just knowledge to be the teacher for, but you've got a bit of perspective and you've got a bit of motivation. I think those, I think that's all true. Um, I think there's probably other ways that these connections happen. This The, the networking itself, um, people connect because they're in the same group, because they're working on the same projects. There will even be people who are connect because of the conversation that they have um, in this last year would have been virtual and it can be in the chat um, or it might have been, uh, you know, part of the video feed um, and previously in person that they would sit next to someone um, and starting to have a conversation. And that would be enough to kind of connect people in some ways that they would maintain a, a, a ongoing relationship in some capacity. And as a beautiful illustration of both that connection as well as the challenges and the taking risks, here's uh, finally Tanya Holt and Tanya Horsley telling us about really what gave them that kind of connection and uh, how they were able to think about taking it back home. Yeah, I believe the connection we made during that course, it was not yeah. only were our, both our names Tanya, but we really connected um, yeah. at an academic level, at a personal level, and it it just, for me, elevated the experience yeah. so much. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And the confidence, I think, that uh, Tanya placed in me. I still remember that 11th hour we had we had a project. And so it was so real world. We had sort of, you know, concretized this idea around a project. And then at the 11th hour, I go to the team, which is like it happens in real life. And I pitched, you know, this crazy idea um, that we had sort of heard about on that day. And Tanya said, I think you need to go for it. And I said, like, 
this is the day before the presentation. And so it was very real world. It was very, it was such an applied experience. And then I remember getting up, she said, I'll get up tomorrow morning. I think you'd been on call or something. It was a crazy week. And, you know, we pitched it and that confidence that she had sort of placed in me after only meeting me, you know, very, very briefly, um, you know, went such a long way. And so we, you know, we really nailed it, I think. Um, but it was learning about how leadership pivots quickly about, it's about building that trust very quickly. It's about advancing something with minimal information. And so I think that's the, the, the best part of the course for me was that you're not sitting there taking notes. It's, it is, it's situated in theory, um, but it does, it forces you to have that real world experience, um, you know, and the, and the last day presentation is that sort of accumulation of all the work and it's the crescendo, but it was so impactful. I still think about it, actually. Such a great experience. Mm. All right. Well, we better finish up there, Josh, but uh, looking forward to the next program, which is not even a month away. So uh, wishing you all the well in your course director role for that. And uh, I've no doubt that the scholars are going to have a fantastic time. So thanks again for the chat. Oh, thanks for doing this, Victoria. This is great. Mm -hmm.